Hello everyone, I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. Hello, queens. We are excited to have our first repeat guest, Dr. G's back in the house. And for those of you that missed the first one, we'll be sure to have links. But let me tell you a little bit about her. It takes a while to read her bio because she's very accomplished. (laughs) Um, Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, MD, certified eating disorder specialist and fellow of the AED, is founder and medical director of the Gaudiani Clinic. She's board certified in internal medicine, and she's completed her undergraduate degree at Harvard Medical School at Boston University and her internal medicine residency and chief residency at Yale. From 2008 to 2016, she was one of the leaders at the Acute Center for Eating Disorders at Denver Health, the nation's top medical stabilization center for adults with eating disorders who are too medically compromised to receive care in a mental health setting. She left as its medical director to found the Gaudiani Clinic, which provides superb outpatient medical care to patients of all genders with eating disorders and disordered eating and to those in recovery, which I actually was spoiled and got to view the clinic. It is gorgeous. The Gaudiani Clinic embraces treating people of all shapes and sizes through a collaborative, communicative, multidisciplinary approach. The clinic cares for the whole person in the context of their values. Dr. Gaudiani has lectured nationally and internationally, is widely published in the scientific literature as well as on blogs, and sits on the board of um, IADEP. As the only internist, Dr. Gaudiani is one of the very few outpatient internists in the U.S. who carries a certified eating disorder specialist designation, is also a fellow in the Academy for Eating Disorders. Dr. G, welcome back. (laughs) I am so psyched to be back, and I just want to say that I actually used to sit on the IADEP board. I am no longer on that board. Oh, well, okay. Thank you for that correction. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, first off... How fun is this? When we first interviewed you, you were in the works of the book. Now the book Sick Enough is here, and it has blown up. Mm-hmm. Tell us about how that's going. Oh, my gosh. It has been so exciting to share Sick Enough with the country and a little bit the world as well. Um, I've gotten really lovely feedback on it, which just has made that work so worthwhile, Uh, you know, from patients who say this has validated my lived experience or from patients who say this has helped my parents understand how serious this is and how hard it is what I'm going through, from providers who say they've brought concepts and metaphors Mm -hmm. and medical details into their session to help break through denial of disease severity and to, again, really validate the importance of getting help. And um, it just feels so exciting. It's been (laughs) a joy. Yeah. Well, speaking of metaphors, that 
that is what I've been using in my practice from your <laughs> book. And I've been using this metaphor, not necessarily a metaphor, but like you use the concept of the caveman brain throughout the book. Um, can you explain what the caveman brain is and how the connection between that and eating disorders? I would love to. So for the vast majority of human evolution, humans have existed in an environment where food has been a questionable resource. That is, there might not have been enough food. So our cave person brain, as I like to call it, because that's about as neuroanatomical as I get, (laughs) is the part of our brain that runs us as a mammal. It doesn't know what year it is. It just knows that it's taking care of the subconscious physiological processes in us to keep us alive through various challenges. And when our cave person brain senses famine, in, that's how it sees it, we might understand that there's a, you know, a diet or a so-called cleanse or relative energy deficiency in sport or an eating disorder. When that cave person brain senses, it jumps right in like it has done throughout our evolution and says, oh, mammal, I will save you. Mm-hmm. And it just changes all of these different physiologic ways in which our bodies run from our metabolic rate, you know, how many calories we burn per day, to our heart rate, to our body temperature, to our digestive system, to our hormones and our bones, to the way our brains interact with the world in order to save our lives from the dreadful famine. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that it says, which is just, by the way, freaking awesome that we have this (laughs) protective part of us constantly looking out for us is it says oh we understand you're in a famine right now mammal and when we get to food plenty again we'll make sure to push your weight up further just to be sure that next time you go through a famine you'll be even safer Mm because clearly we're in a time of famine Mm -hmm. this is why diets don't work This is why no one should ever be recommended to go on a diet because our brain is programmed through thousands of years to resist it. People don't fail diets. Diets fail people. Right. Mm -hmm. Say that again Mm -hmm. for for our listeners (laughs) about how the body will protect itself by increasing weight. Yeah. Not in everybody. Everyone's a little different. But on the whole, when we fast, even just for a couple of days, our body goes, oh, got it. You know, I mean, it is constantly scanning us for energy adequacy. And even after just a couple of days of of restriction, and we know that all the eating disorders typically involve periods of restriction, anorexia, atypical anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, when that brain senses energy inadequacy, it's going to say, oh, I gotcha. I'll make sure you're safe. I'll take care of you. And it's just proof, scientific proof, that no one should be deliberately under-eating for their energy needs and their satisfaction because our physiology is going to come back to bite us in the ass. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I was talking to a client, you know, experiencing irritability and angst and not sleeping and hypervigilance about food. And, you know, it is 
to her hearing like, okay, well, this is this is biology. Like mm-hmm. we can yeah. this can change. This isn't going to be like this permanence of who I am. This is who I am now. But like nutritional rehab can help. And this is just basic biology going on of your brain keeping you alive. You got it. It's not you. And if you have an eating disorder, this isn't your eating disorder. This is your starved brain. Mm-hmm. And this makes sense because when mammals don't have enough food, when their brain senses that they're at risk, they're going to get more paranoid and rigid. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. going to be spontaneous and playful. They're going to get really serious and focused and intense. They are going to sense the environment for risk because they know that they're not at full strength. And a lot of patients who aren't eating enough do suffer from insomnia. As I like to say, their brain is busy making safety plans Mm -hmm. all night long. Only (laughs) when you combine that mammal brain with a human brain in our screwed up society that focuses so much on appearance as equating with health, what the the safety plans look like was how much did I eat? How much did I move? How much did I burn? How much can I eat tomorrow? What will I eat tomorrow? And I mean, it is just a torment, but it is biological. Mm-hmm. Nourishment will help fix this. What a beautiful reframe. I love that. That's your safety plan. So like when our clients are commenting like, oh, now I don't know what to do for dinner. Now I don't know what to do for lunch. Mm-hmm. Be like, okay, you're making your, your safety, safety planning. Plan. Yeah. Yeah. In our first interview, you spoke of how we are pulling from our self-care reservoir, that we will eventually feel it physically. Is that what you mean by not sick enough? That's such a really good combination, Uh, you know, a a really good frame that you've just brought together. I think, yeah, I think that really does go together. What I've observed is that so many of us, whether we've been impacted by an eating disorder personally or whether we're just influenced by society's messages. We constantly are driven, many of us, by a sense that we should be doing more, doing more, doing better. And that impacts us as women across an incredible spectrum of possible tasks. These might be professional, they might be domestic, they might be related to a partner, possibly to having children, certainly in relationship to our own families, to our friend group, there are, to our sport, there are so many different things that women are involved in. And I think it's very easy when we're fortunate enough, when we're privileged to have the ability to do a lot, that we can accidentally tap into that reservoir without continually refilling it. And one of the things that many of us fall prey to whether or not there's an eating disorder is this sense of I don't need to stop now I don't need to put my feet up now I don't need to 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 take a break now what what in my body shows me that I need to do that and I think we all suffer from a sense that we're quote-unquote not sick enough to do the self-care that in our wisest moments, we know we truly need on a continuous basis. Where that happens for patients with eating disorders is that they think because of the mental illness, I'm not sick enough, parentheses, underweight enough, 
uh, low potassium enough, concerned family enough, concerned friends enough, whatever it might be, to seek care and change my behaviors. But you're right that it shows up in so many amazing women and men too in ways that say, well, I seem to be balancing all of this stuff. You know, I'm not sick. I'm not falling apart. But then we have to stop and say, wait, what am I saying? Why am I playing roulette mm-hmm. with my mental and physical well-being and using some external marker as reason to take it easier? What if I were to care for myself appropriately on a day-to-day basis, even if that means disappointing some expectations? Mm-hmm in order to really live my values. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's a wonderful lesson we can all take. So yesterday I stumbled across an article on social media and it was really interesting. It was saying, it was geared towards mothers, but it was saying, moms, repeat stomach aches deserve your attention. And it was talking Mm. about how when your kiddo keeps coming up and saying, my tummy hurts, Mm. that instead of just treating the issue with giving a Pepto or trying to figure out what's happening is to really address that maybe something is causing them worry. And it made me think of one of your chapters in your book where you had um, a case example of the same thing, a, a child that had been kind of coming with all these physical manifestations and the parents were just kind of dismissive of it until she ended up at that, you know, roulette. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think there are a couple of ways we can think about this problem because I think it's it's an important one. As parents or as people who interact with children, we really need to pay attention to the somatic manifestations of emotional states because a lot of kids don't have the maturity or just the insight to be like, I am concerned that blah, blah, blah. You know, instead <laughs> they feel it as a tummy ache. Um, and that mind-body connection exists. It is real. It shows up in everyone from everyone of every possible age. And I think one of the things that I learned in doing the work I do with my eating disorder patients is first with my own daughters and then extending it back into my clinical practice that, you know, I used to be the sort of typical physician mom who when one of my daughters was little and she'd be like, oh, mom, my tummy hurts, I would go into differential diagnosis mode. Okay, <laughs> are you hungry? Do you need to poop? Uh, what's happening? You know, let, let me figure out what's going on. Uh-huh. And then I would typically say, oh, honey, I think you're okay. Uh-huh. But what was I doing there? What I was doing there was not serving her need. I was serving my own need. Yeah. I was serving my own need to triage and then to take myself off the emotional hook for my kids' discomfort, knowing that it wasn't dangerous. But what kid thinks they have a dangerous stomachache? No, there's something going on that they want support and sympathy and comfort for. So I really transformed the way that I interact with my kids on topics like this. And now, for many years now, when they come to me with a somatic complaint, I typically will say some combination of, I'm so sorry, that sounds really uncomfortable. Do you want to cuddle or do you want to talk about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, that pretty much covers it. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> because what, what it does is it validates <clears throat> and 
it offers compassion, and then it suggests that there's a solution that that you know doesn't necessarily have to be an action, but can be connection mm-hmm. and and comfort. My hope is that in hearing that over and over again, they will absorb that into their beautiful little souls and offer themselves the same routines as they go mm-hmm. through life, and they're not in, in my home anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think that 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 really is something that that we all need to pay attention to and. It does come up in my clinical work as well, although it's really important to note that when I share that story in the book of the patient, uh, I think it's in one of the early chapters, by no means do I imply that parents are the problem or that Mm -hmm. parents are ignoring their kids. It's just that the medical system silos body and soul so much, and parents, when they're being parents like I was, you know, they sort of want to get to the root of it and and sometimes there is no root. It's just it's it's comfort and and talking through things. Mm-hmm. So from the book, we're curious: Have you seen or heard any feedback from kind of twofold question the individuals that have read the book, and then specifically like healthcare providers? Yeah, I've been so excited to hear from both, and I think patients' experiences have been really diverse, but. What I've heard has been really positive where, you know, they read it and they themselves realize, oh, I have some of this stuff. I turn out not to be okay. This stuff is reversible. I do actually need help. Or, you know, where they're struggling with motivation, they're already, you know, fully diagnosed. They might even be admitted to residential treatment and they find I think some comfort in reminding themselves they are sick enough. This is the time to do this work. These are the ways their body is showing them they're not okay, whether that's measurable or unmeasurable. And then from providers, it feels so good because, you know, we know, unfortunately, there just aren't that many doctors who know eating disorders or are even curious and open necessarily to learning about eating disorders. I mean, I don't know about tons of subspecialties in medicine, and not everyone is specialized in, in everything by any means. Um, but I think what I'm hearing from providers, and I'd be interested in, in your feelings on this, is that they feel more empowered to be able to speak with medical providers, to advocate for their patients, and to be able to know the state of the art medically to refer to, as well as to help patients interpret and and be supported on what they're experiencing physically. Mm-hmm. I agree. You think it'd be best to focus in the, the med schools and when they're first starting out, do you think it's hard for physicians when they're, you know, what are the, is it the average they have seven minutes with a patient and then they're expected to move on, they probably don't have a whole lot of time for continuing education or a thorough assessment. No, that's totally right. I'm involved in efforts to try to improve medical students' exposure to eating disorders and to learn more about them. I had zero training during my entire medical training. Um, And you're right, you know, today's doctors are dissatisfied and sort of miserable for a reason, myself very much excluded from that happily, um, because the quality of medicine they're able to provide in a go, go, go system mm-hmm. is lousy. It's not what they got in the, in the game for, mm-hmm. but it's what the system is asking of them. 
Um, I think the probably the best we can ask, and it's not unreasonable to ask of our medical providers, to learn enough about topics like internalized size stigma and about the diagnosis of eating disorders and the diversity of bodies who present with eating disorders mm-hmm. in order to do less harm and at least identify individuals to get them referred to fabulous community dietitians and therapists who do know eating disorders <laughs> and who then may well be able to connect the patient not only with great care, but also with other clinical resources. Mm-hmm. What do you think about like just my frustration of kind of working with providers that, you know, not just my eating disorder clients, but pregnancy, postpartum, or um, just the kind of the dieting discussions that's happening mm. from the <laughs> providers. I think that would just be nice not to um, oh. have that being a solution to so many of the problems. My goodness. You or got fertility. pneumonia? Here, yeah. go on the keto. That's like a lot of my <laughs> clients struggle with PCOS <laughs> and they've heard from providers, well, you need to lose weight and um, these individuals have a history of an eating disorder. So that's what I would love to change. <laughs> <laughs> I could do that. Get on that soapbox, Karen. Did you bring a magic (laughs) wand? Are we doing that? Yeah, yeah, we have magic wand. The three of us can do that. That's right. Our crowns. Oh. Do you see that changing at all or improving? I don't. I totally don't. Mm -hmm. But what I do. Way to be optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I have to be realistic and I have to validate patients' lived experiences to be like, yeah, physicians are an oppressor class to people with eating disorders, and they sure as shit are an oppressive class to people in larger bodies. Mm-hmm. We have just been taught all wrong, all wrong. I was taught all wrong. I did it all wrong for so long with patients in larger bodies, this this fallacy, this scientific untruth that if you, quote, unquote, just eat less than you burn, you're going to lose weight. This is incorrect. It is incorrect. It is not scientific. We just talked about the cave person brain and how, you know, our metabolism and our use of energy is a totally moving target. Physicians do grave harm in the recommendation of diets. I was just speaking with uh, a wonderful young woman whose daughter has been in the 95th percentile of um, body weight for the last four years. She comes from a curvy, strong family and is a young woman of color. And the pediatrician has started saying, you know, you should go on a diet to this 11-year-old. And this little... Oh, and I mean, it is just agonizing. So, you know, I I talked to this person and I, I said how deeply inappropriate and probably racist and certainly sizist Mm -hmm. that kind of comment is and how we have to name it as such but there's power in the room when there's a doctor and a Mm -hmm. patient you know and and there are historical balances of power that we can't just ask patients well go blazing in there and you tell that pediatrician don't weigh your kid anymore and don't make comments there is power in the room there and some may be able to stand up and advocate and some really may not and and mustn't be you know in any way made to feel small for that fact but doctors cause harm and the best we can do is continue as an eating disorder community to come together around weight inclusive care to insist upon it to model it for our patients to give them words to speak 
if they wish to and feel comfortable doing so to decline being weighed in the doctor's office and to process with their team when a random subspecialist says, and you know what, you should probably lose some weight. Um, but it is it is harmful, it is pervasive, and I hope that as my book gets out, it will be a resource, you know, that I can use my privilege to help medical providers understand that there is another vastly better way to care for patients that never recommends focusing on weight or weight loss that only focuses on behavioral change. But I mean, these come down to the social justice components of access to, to healthcare, access mm-hmm. to resources, safety of our bodies in places where people move, um, access to food, et cetera. These are pervasive systems-wide problems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dr. G, I know you're uh, busy now with the book tour. You're coming to Kansas City here in whoop, May, whoop, right? May. We're super excited. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> So any new tips for us of how you're maintaining the fit philosophy during your book tour? Yeah, you know, um, at the at the end of each year, uh, my husband and I go to the mountains for a couple of days together and leave the kids at home with their nanny and we really spend some time together. And our, our main focus, nerdy and earnest as we are, <laughs> is to think about what we each need and what we need as a couple as we head into the new year to do the things we want. I love that. It's so lovely just Mm -hmm. to go on snowshoes and and ski days and just sort of think about how we can do this. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the, the biggest teaching for me out of this year's retreat that I'm really trying to embody just pushes my my previous commitments to this even further to the fit philosophy, which is, um, in this case, I identified that I, like many people, have what I would call a dumbass old recording <laughs> that fits in my soul. Right. And I say dumbass not to put down my own vulnerability, because here I am talking about it, but to, to reduce its power over me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my dumbass uh, thing that I that I have continued to struggle with over the years is if I am not overwhelmingly busy, I'm not worthy of the good things in my life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that has shown up in many different arenas. And by identifying it as a dumbass old recording, which intellectually I know not to be true, I really can start to observe it and pay attention to where it shows up and to do things differently, mm-hmm. to set more boundaries, to contain where I say yes and where I say no, and to free myself to have needs that I just have to meet, even if it's a bum out, you know, even if I wish I didn't, I could say yes to so many things that people ask because, because I might be helpful. I have to realize that this is my marathon. It isn't a sprint. Mm-hmm. And I have to be able to gate my energies accordingly. I have found it incredibly joyful and liberating to have had the privilege to put this into play this year. And I already feel the difference in my soul. I feel 
more refreshed and I feel more energetic, more present in the various aspects of my life and not without that moment of ooh when I have to disappoint someone mm-hmm. or say no, but it means that I'm able to continue doing what I do and that I don't feel the need to apologize for having those needs as much. So I guess that's my commitment and I hope that all of your wonderful listeners will pause to consider what is their dumbass old reporting <laughs> mm-hmm. that they keep really? responding mm-hmm. to and how might they be able to untangle themselves if that's safe and possible mm-hmm. from that in order to live really more in accordance with their values. Man, I think that's such a strong one to first identify. Like, what is that little storyline that you've mm-hmm. been telling yourself that's come from somewhere that still is making the decisions for you? And then, you know, more often than not, it's the, the it's FOMO. Not right. Yeah. Fear of missing <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. I have JOMO. Most JOMO. Of have the joy of missing out. Joy of I missing out. We'll go from FOMO <laughs> to JOMO. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, Dr. G, we look forward to seeing you in May. And in the meantime, we'll be following you on social media and be sure to put all the links on your show notes. Mm-hmm. Well, I will continue to be following you, and I'm so appreciative for all that you do. Oh, well, thank you. Have a great day. Thank you to our sponsor today, Sentimano Counseling. Sentimano Counseling is the premier perinatal mental health practice in Kansas City, treating mood disorders during pregnancy and postpartum, perinatal loss, infertility, eating, and exercise disorders. Go to Sentimano.com for further information about the practice and services. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fit for a Queen. And Hashtag Fit for a Queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.